You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hey, guys. And today, we wanted to talk about um, kind of a conceptual thing, but throw some numbers behind it, too, with some examples, and that's the big things mattering a lot more than the little things. You know, some of this gets down to a budgeting conversation. Others is more of you know the, the important components of investing when it comes to saving for retirement, what really matters. And uh, so we're going to dive into that a little bit today. You know, I think a lot of times we get caught up in the minutia of life and fixated on the tiny stuff that in the grand scheme of things doesn't really make a big difference. And we, we want to try and shift that focus on to more of the bigger things. We can focus on few things, but have those few things make a much bigger impact in ultimately being able to achieve our financial goals. So where do you want to start, Rochelle? I think spending. I think that's a good place to start. Something people think about pretty frequently. And a lot of times you see articles talking about how people spend too much on little stuff all the time and how it adds up and how Starbucks is like ruining the world with their $5 coffees. And, (laughs) you know, people buy a $5 coffee every day. And if they didn't do that, they would have this dollar amount. And if they invested it, and you can like extrapolate all the way out. But I would absolutely argue that. If you're making a good income, the coffee is not the problem. It is not the problem. And the, no, no, there's such bigger drivers in your financial plan as far as costs go and like the budget in general. And we're going to run through a, a few of these with just a little bit of detail. But, you know, it's like housing and student loans for a lot of you guys out there. And sometimes it's things like cars and travel, kids. They cost a lot. So if you do have kids, like that's a big line item in your budget. It might be childcare, it might be private school. Um, And then another thing, you know, a big driver in your budget, hopefully, is saving for retirement. You know, like there could be just a, a big chunk of money that you're putting away for your future self that you don't have access to right now. That's not a bad thing. It's just obviously gonna be a big line item on that budget. I do think housing is probably the biggest one that we want to spend some time thinking about because it will very likely be your biggest expense. Um, And and that's whether you're renting or have a mortgage. Like a lot of times people want to modify their housing to kind of adjust to their lifestyle and to like the income they're making and kind of have a home that reflects what they think they're worth. Or, or, you know, I I don't know, maybe... Maybe that's overly simplified and, and judgmental a little bit. But it makes sense if you make quite a bit of money that you'd like to have a nice home. But in addition to like those larger payments, like that also drives the rest of that, like keeping up with the Joneses, just making sure that, you know, if you have the nice house, you also have the nice car and all of the other things to match. And like obviously all of that can can push you farther and farther away from being able to meet your goals if you just don't really have the income to do all of those things and meet your goals. Um, I don't know. What else do you think about that, Corey? 
Yeah, the housing one, I mean, outside of taxes, your housing is going to be your biggest expense. And I think a lot of people just look at the mortgage payment, which is a you know sizable chunk of change. And, um, you know, they just focus on that. But in reality, hang on, I've got a dog who's whining here and wants out of the office and <laughs> we can either edit this out or leave it in, either one. And, Let's leave it in. Uh, yeah, we'll just leave it in. It's messy, whatever. Um, so yeah, the, you know, there's the mortgage payment, there's the property taxes, which will go up over time, home insurance, the maintenance items. We've talked about that on previous episodes. The the maintenance costs of housing uh, can can really start to add up. But then I think what you mentioned, the keeping up with the Joneses, is a real thing. There's um, yeah, just whether you want to admit it or not, people want to you know, feel like they are are on the same page as their neighbors when it comes to things. So if you're living in the the stereotypical doctor house in the nice neighborhood and, you know, all your neighbors are driving nice cars and have landscapers and, you know, take nice vacations and, you know, buy the nice grill and the nice lawnmower and you're going to want to do the same. You remember I had had, uh, someone I met with a few years back and they were, um, buying, I think, like a two and a half million dollar house, and it, you know they were uh, they, they earned good income for sure. It was still maybe a little more than I would have recommended, um, but you know they the close on the house, and I'm like, all right, now that we saved up for the down payment, closed on the house, you guys ready to get back to saving for retirement? And I'm like, well, we need to buy some furniture. I was like, okay, what are we thinking of spending on furniture? It's like, well, you know, phase one, we have an interior designer, and they've estimated it'll be about two hundred fifty thousand. And I was like, wow, um, phase one is two hundred fifty thousand. That's impressive. Um, they're like, yeah, well, you know, we're moving into this nice neighborhood and we can't just have the Ikea furniture. We'd be embarrassed to have people over at our house. So we got to have, you know, furniture that that matches, you know, the 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 house, I guess, if you will. So, um, you know, and it's just a trickle down effect, you know, with everything. It's it's not just the mortgage payment. It's all the other things that go along with keeping up with the Joneses. And the reverse is true. If you live in more of a middle class neighborhood and everyone's driving used cars and their kids are going to public school and Hawaii for spring break isn't a thing. They go camping for spring break. You know, you'll feel like, uh, you know, like you stick out if you're driving the new car and getting all the new toys and spoiling your kids and everything. Um, you, you know, you want to mesh with, with the people that, that you're around most frequently. So I think that something to keep in mind, not saying you shouldn't live in a nice house in a nice neighborhood, but just be aware that, that it is a significant expense and just making a minor change, you know, instead of living in the million dollar house, maybe the $750,000 house or the $500,000 house, you can still live in a, depending on what city you're in, you know, a pretty decent home in a good neighborhood, but it doesn't have to necessarily be the most expensive one. And of course, if you can afford it, great. By all means, if you're an mm-hmm. orthopedic surgeon making a million a year and you can afford the million dollar house, no problem, and the nice cars, by all means, go for it. But it's it's all relative. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing you can control. And some things that are like big items you can't control, like student loans. If you have them, you can't go back and give them back. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, I would just say your student loans are probably about the equivalent of a mortgage payment also. It might not be quite as much as your mortgage and a, a total dollar amount, but chances are you're trying to get rid of them faster. So, you know, it could be even a, a larger line item in your budget than your mortgage is if you're really trying to be aggressive about that. 
with your student loans in general, we don't have a ton of control over that, but I will say like, make sure you're doing your due diligence and making sure you're taking advantage of anything that you have available to you that could go towards your student loans, whether that's asking for some sort of bonus when you sign your new employment contract or looking into National Health Service Corps programs if you're like primary care, public service loan forgiveness, if that might be an option for you, make sure you're exploring all of the options to get the free money because that will take a big portion of that off of your plate and shift it onto someone else's. And it is, it's real money. Like this is a lot of money that you're having to spend and it was money well spent. It got you your education. It made it so that you can be a doctor and that you can earn the income you're earning now. But obviously, whatever we can do to minimize that impact on your budget is going to be very helpful. I think just recognizing that they're part of your life and we need to do what we can to pay them down in a timely manner while still putting money towards our other financial goals. But like you said, Rochelle, your student loans are basically the equivalent of a mortgage, maybe even more than your mortgage, depending on where you live and what your loan balance is. And we know like when you're when this will be released, all federal loans are on zero interest, zero payments. But in normal times, you know, those are gonna go back to you know, the mortgage style amount um, and, and treat it as such. Like if, if you have a, a mortgage equivalent of student loans, like that's money that can't go elsewhere. So maybe it means we have to wait to get the vacation home until the student loans are paid off. You know, it's we might not be able to take the international trips for a little while until we knock those out of the picture and then we can use that freed up expense to go towards other things, whatever the situation is. Um, you know, it's real money. So you know, we need to be aware of that and, and not just ignore them, if you will, from, oh, these are student loans. They don't really count. No, they, they count. It's money coming <laughs> out of your, your pocket that's going away. Mm-hmm. But you won't have them forever. You know, I think Correct. sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> it feels like they're just going to be there forever. But yeah, if you're if you're doing what you can to get rid of them, they're not going to stick with you that long or not, you know maybe 20 years at the most, which is painful. We understand. <laughs> but if you're, you know, yeah. in training or early on in your career, if you can discipline yourself and just really hammer away at those in the first few years that you're in practice, get them out of the picture, then, um, you know, life will be good from there on out. You live like a resident initially, get rid of the student loans, and then we have that freed up expense to go towards those luxuries in life that we may want. Yeah. One of the other luxuries and a couple of other line items that can get fairly large in the budget are like the cars, keeping up with the Joneses. So, you know, a modest car is probably not going to be a huge line item on your budget. It will be a line item, but not anything dramatic. But you can spend a lot on a car. (laughs) And, you know, like you don't have to. Like that is the like, you know, definition of something that's optional. So, you know, we want you to get a safe family car and we're not saying that you can only spend $200 a month on a car or something like that, but it's definitely something to make sure that you're really taking stock of when you do decide to to make that purchase. Um, Again, you may be able to afford it, but if we'd rather put our money somewhere else, somewhere that's more valuable to ourselves, then let's do that. Travel is another thing. I think COVID 
made it very obvious that we don't have to travel quite as much as we wanted to. And some people probably really missed it and are going to get right back to it. But I think there are other folks that realize that there's a lot of fun to kind of be had in your backyard, maybe sometimes even literally in your backyard. (laughs) (laughs) My, My husband's birthday was on March, or it is on March 22nd, which was you know, nine days after quarantine began in 2020 for us. And we definitely had a backyard birthday, but we had a great time and it was amazing. And we, you know, obviously would have liked to have done something bigger, but sometimes smaller and more intimate things can be very, very lovely too. Um, So that's just another thing to keep in mind. You know, you don't have to spend a ton of money three times per year going on international vacations with the entire family and paying for your parents too. You know, we can do a family camp out like that can be amazing especially i mean you can even have more people involved if you're doing that again speaking post pandemic post vaccine <laughs> yes when it's but, safe and you feel comfortable doing so again and again as, exactly as you mentioned already rochelle if, assuming we can afford to do all those things and still mm-hmm. put enough aside to achieve our other goals that we have in a timely manner by all means you know go nuts buy the first yeah. class plane tickets stay in the presidential suite at the hotel like have fun spoil yourself um but if we're spending all that money on those luxuries and it comes at you know the sacrifice of some of our other goals that we would really probably value more when it's all said and done looking back on life yeah maybe we just need to take a step back and reassess the priorities like what's that quote that president biden had i think back when he was a senator it's you know don't tell me what your values are show me your budget and i'll tell you what your values are so Mm -hmm. doesn't matter to us what's important to you guys just you know let's try and align our spending with what's important and the material things often for most people aren't 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 the important ones so it's the spending time doing enjoyable things with with people you care about yep speaking of people you care about then there's kids (laughs) if you do have kids it's expensive And, and we're not telling you not to have kids, but that is, that is a huge expense. So we've done a couple of episodes and like blog posts and things about that. But on average, it will probably cost about $400,000 per kid for, for most of you to raise a kid, do the childcare thing, maybe have some schooling in there and eating and all that kind of stuff, clothing. And then if you want to pay for college, maybe another two hundred dollars to $600,000, depending on what you're planning to do for them. Um, that's huge. That's so huge. And if you do want to have kids, like that's amazing. Like that's that's part of your family. That's a huge commitment, but it's also a, a joy for for the people that want to do it. It will maybe make the difference between you retiring at age fifty five or retiring at age sixty five. Like how much you have to spend out of pocket on other things, obviously, is a big influence on how much you can afford to save and invest for future you. Um, but maybe present you is more happy with the little ones running around and turning into surly teenagers. Um, I think that's kind of one of those choices that everyone has to make for themselves. I do think that when we're thinking about the kids and the budget with the kids, there's also some choices that you can make on, on how you raise your kids that kind of determines what that cost and what that bottom line looks like. So, you know, 
one pandemic thing I got used to is cutting my daughter's hair, which is, again, one of those little, little things. But, you know, there's a lot of things that that can be big drivers of costs in your financial plan that relate to kids. And with childcare, it's like, okay, are we in a daycare center? Are we in, you know, a, a more shared shared care setting or are we hiring a nanny for just our kids and like obviously there's some big price differences there and you have to decide what's right for your family but that can make a big difference in the financial plan too yeah and then the public versus private school debate um mm-hmm. and we're not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't do you know how many kids you should have how you should raise your kids like you know whatever works for you it's just let's just setting the expectation so that we don't have unrealistic expectations. Like it's, it's it, unless you're making a lot of money and in a, a moderate to low cost of living area, it will be challenging to retire early while still raising a family. Um, it's just, especially if you want to help with college. Yeah. The co- like, mm-hmm. yeah, the cost is real to raise a kid from birth to, adulthood and then pay for their college. I mean, we're talking for a lot of you on the line, it's going to be a million dollars per kid, like over the course of a 22 year span, call it. So if you have two or three kids, we're talking two or $3 million that you're outlaying for your children. And if you had invested that money instead for retirement over the course of your career, like we're, you know, that's an extra, like, you're retiring 10 or 15 years earlier without kids. So don't resent <laughs> your kids for it. My dad will tell me all the time, like, if I didn't have you guys, I would have retired in my 50s. <laughs> like, great. And you won't have someone <laughs> to wipe your butt when you're old either. So, um, <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it goes both ways. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it just, just be realistic about the expectations. So if you want us mm-hmm. to retire early and, 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 uh, you know, have kids, great. It's just going to take some discipline on the saving side of things. And it may mean, like you said, Rochelle, having, you know, exploring in the own backyard instead of exploring Europe or South America or something. So investing. So this is one I wanted to get to today because, you know, kind of shifting gears from spending to like focusing on what's important, focusing on the big things. And a lot of people get really fixated on returns when it comes to investing and, I think everyone's aware that you can't control returns. They're out of your control. And past performance doesn't equate to future performance. Yet our society, for whatever reason, likes to highlight returns. And on all of our statements and account logins, it shows us the year-to-date performance, the most recent quarter performance, the daily, the monthly, the hourly performance. Like Everywhere you go in flashing green or red numbers, it shows you your return for this most recent period, which really is counterproductive for ultimately reaching your goals because all it does is trigger our brain to either say "Ooh, that's good or "Ooh, that's bad and if it's good let's just do more of whatever we're doing that's the good thing and if it's bad let's try and do less of whatever is the bad thing and uh, you know in both scenarios it possibly causes us to make untimely changes to our portfolio um, you know either getting too greedy or or too fearful and uh, you're really focusing on what you can control and, and focusing on the big things that matter more than the little things like the, uh, uh, I don't know if we want to call it a dirty little secret, but let's just go with that. A dirty little secret of financial planning and investing the amount 
that you save for your goals matters significantly more than what you're investing in and what returns you get on those investments. So for example, let's say we have two doctors making 300,000 a year and they have completely identical circumstances. And let's pretend one of them saves 10% of their income for retirement or 30,000 a year. But they get, you know, pretty good rate of return on their investments. Let's say over the course of their career they average an 8% annual rate of return. Now, you know, if you've listened to us before, you know that it, the returns aren't linear. You're not going to just be on an escalator going straight up. It's, some years are going to be better than other years. You know, one year you'll be up 20%. Next year you'll be down 12%. Sure, the average is 8, but it was you weren't anywhere near 8 in either of those years. But over a long period of time, just for the fun of this example, we need some number to work around. So, you know, let's just say we get an 8% rate of return on that investment, um, saving 10% a year. And then let's say doctor number two, making 300,000, saves 25% of her income per year, but she only gets a 6% average rate of return over the course of her career, which those return differences can be pretty significant over time. And, you know, it, it adds up. One, one of them is 33% greater than the others each year. So Dr. One, saving 10% of their income, 30000 a year for retirement. After 30 years of doing that, at an 8% rate of return, he has a little under $3.5 million. Pretty good. We didn't even factor increasing the savings for pay raises or inflation, just a flat 30000 a year for 30 years. Um, you end up with $3.5 million. Not too shabby. Dr. Number Two... If we're saving 75000 a year, 25% of a 300 k income. So saving 75000 a year at a 6% return, she ends up with almost twice as much, $6 million after 30 years. So yeah, the returns weren't as good, but you know the end result was still more significant. And you may say, oh, well, yeah, Corey, that's because you're saving more than twice as much. Well, Duh, that's the point. We're saving more than twice as much, so we're going to have more than twice as much at the end, or almost twice as much. Now, let's let's just you know look at some other scenarios or examples. So let's say both doctors need, they've calculated with the help of a good financial planner that they, they each need $5 million in their nest egg to be able to retire and stop working. Now, in reality, it's going to be a little different because you know doctor number one is spending $45,000 a year more than doctor number two, so you know, you're going to need more to support that same lifestyle in retirement. But let's just pretend, for the simplicity of this, we just need $5 million each to support the life we want to live in retirement. So doctor number two, getting a 6% yearly return, it'll take her about 27 and a half years to get there, saving 75000 a year. Now, if doctor number two ends up getting an 8% average return, it only takes 24 years to get there. Um, doctor number one getting the 8% rate of return, saving 10% of his income, 30000 a year, it'll take 35 years to get to that $5 million mark. So doctor number two got there in 27 and a half. Doctor number one got there in 35 years. 
Now let's say it, doctor number two, or doctor number one, excuse me, who's saving 30000 a year only gets a 6% rate of return, like doctor number one was getting. Now it's going to take 41 years to get to the same goal. So about 14 years longer than the person saving more. So, I mean, you don't need a financial planner. You don't need the crazy calculations. I know it can kind of be hard on audio trying to track all those numbers I just threw out there. Um, but long story short, even if you factor in different return rates and then everything, like the amount you save ends up mattering a lot more than picking the perfect investment and getting better returns over the course of your career. So we've mentioned before, try and save at least 20% of your income for retirement. It can, the number for you might need to be different depending on when you start saving and when you want to retire and the lifestyle you want to live. But, um, but the amount you end up saving over time for your goals is going to make a much bigger impact on you achieving those goals than whatever investment you decide, you decide to throw the money in. I know we like that 20% number a lot, but I always want people to save more. <laughs> I am such a fan of just saving as much as you can. Like, I, I think it's just an addiction maybe, but I, I think like when people have extra room in their budget and it's just kind of sitting there and building up in cash, like that is a time when you need to be increasing your investments because even if you don't want to retire earlier, even if you think you're going to work forever, if you're not spending it, you should do something with it. And there are so many different things that you can potentially do with this empire you're building. If you're someone that's you know, charitably inclined, you can set up some sort of trust. Like there's, there's so many things that you can do with that wealth. And I, I love the idea of just, you know, putting that somewhere that it can be productive if you do have extra cash flow. So yes, I love like shooting for that 20% number. If you want to retire early, maybe do more. If you have extra money, like get it working for you, get it working for whatever cause you want it to be working for. And I think there are some other big things in investing that we want to focus in on. Um, I think, Corey, you kind of briefly touched on this too, but just the idea of being really consistent. Like, you know, we have an investment strategy. We don't need to mess with it too much. We definitely don't want to react emotionally to things that are happening in the market. And that can be very, very difficult. Like, you know, when the market's really down or even if it's really up, and we like move our retirement accounts to cash because we're worried that something terrible is going to happen. Like it is so hard to time those things correctly. Like I have a client recently who's like, I put my 401k in cash because the market's so high right now. And then the market goes up another 5%. And then, you know, maybe then he gets reinvested and then maybe we have a pullback. And, and it's so hard to figure that out. So just don't mess with it. Just be consistent. Save on a regular basis. Stick to your investment strategy. You can make like small adjustments as needed, but don't do anything dramatic and don't do anything like emotionally in response to what's happening. Um, I think one other thing that is like a big pet, pet peeve with me in investing is that Taxes matter a lot. They matter a lot right now, but they will also matter a lot when you're in retirement. 
I do have a lot of clients who sort of assume that that they're at a very like high income tax bracket right now because they're making quite a bit of money and that in retirement they won't need as much money so they'll be in a lower tax bracket. That is not necessarily true. We know what tax brackets are right now. We do not know what they're going to be when you're in retirement and they will probably change several times when you're in retirement. So like tax rates change all the time. So the one thing that we know about taxes when you're retired is that they're uncertain. <laughs> like like we, we can't predict it. It will change. And I do think like paying a lot of attention to what kinds of distributions you're going to be taking in retirement is important and taking advantage of any of those tax advantaged accounts that you have, like any the accounts like at your work, the 401ks and the 403bs of the world that you get tax deferred growth in. Maybe you get a tax break now. Maybe they're Roth and you can take that money out when you're retired and, and don't have to pay taxes on that. Um that can be a really, really, really powerful thing, especially for young people. Like you might be in a high tax bracket now, but if you invest on a post-tax basis or on a Roth basis, all of the growth in that account is tax deferred and you don't have to take like pay taxes on the distributions when you take them. And compounding interest is very, very powerful when you have a long time to be invested. And the fact that you get all of that compounding interest without having to pay taxes when you take it out is, is a big deal. So I do like Roth accounts. Obviously, they're not going to be right all the time, but let's just be paying attention to those taxes. And when we're working with like taxable brokerage accounts, which many of you will end up using for like additional retirement savings because we max out all of those tax advantaged accounts and then we need someplace else to save. Like they're very liquid, but we do have to be thinking about capital gains taxes in those accounts. So it's just any tax on the growth or the 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 realized gains, I should say. It's just the difference between when you buy and when you sell. When you sell out of an account in there, you're going to trigger some gains. And also the, the funds that you're in within those accounts could also trigger gains. So be very careful when you're selecting the funds that you put in those accounts. Be very careful when you decide to sell anything. Um, and just be aware that that's something that you're going to have to contend with in retirement too. And we don't know what those tax rates are going to look like either. So... You know, taxes is going to be a thing. So whatever we can do to take advantage of the tax breaks that are offered us, do it. Yeah, do some tax loss harvesting when your accounts aren't going as well as you would like them to. And that can help mm -hmm. reduce the, the end tax bill over time. So I think just kind of making sure we have a strategy in place, making sure we're, we're consistent and sticking with it. The more we can automate, the better. You know, we, we set mm -hmm. up a withdrawal from our paycheck to go into the 403B or 401k at work. You could set up an automatic monthly deposit to your brokerage account. You know, the more things that you can automate in your life, the less you have to think about them and you, and you can just Put it on autopilot. You don't have to worry about writing a big check at the end of the year because it's less likely that that'll actually get accomplished if um, if we have to be proactive and do that. So, anything else you can think of worth addressing today, Rochelle? No, I think focusing on the big things is important. You you do want to look at the details every once in a while too, but <laughs> but yeah, figure out what's important to you and do that. For sure. All right, you guys have a good one. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at 
Affinity Group, LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at theaffinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.